Welcome to this week's Thirsty episode. I am Pastor Michael Zarling. And I'm Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer. And we are here beginning the season of Lent. And the overall theme is re- rethinking religion. And we're going to be looking at this Sunday specifically at rethinking trials, tests, and temptations. And we'll look at uh, test in the Old Testament and temptations in the gospel lesson. The prayer of the day fits very well with everything we're talking about. Um, We pray, Mighty God and Father, our Lord Jesus walked into the wilderness to face the devil's temptations, but he did not succumb to Satan's lies or falter in his resolve to save the world from the prison of hell. Bolster our faith by his mighty victory that we may battle against the forces of evil with courage and confidence through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So we're going to touch on, first of all, the first lesson. Nathan, you want to read that from Genesis 22? Yeah, from Genesis 22, starting with verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He called to him, Abraham. Abraham answered, I am here. God said, Now take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains there, the one to which I direct you. Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, along with Isaac, his son. Abraham split the wood for the burnt offering. Then he set out to go to the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go on over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and loaded it on Isaac, his son. He took the fire pot and the knife in his hand. Then two of them went on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, I am here, my son. He said, Here are the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them went on together. They came to the place that God had told him about. Abraham built the altar there. He arranged the wood, tied up Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham said, I am here. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham looked around and saw that behind him there was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide. So it is said to this day, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will bless you greatly and I will multiply your descendants greatly like the stars of the sky and like the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the city gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Moses is writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that sometime later God tested Abraham. So sometime later, uh, 25 years after God had given 
Isaac this, uh, promised Abraham that he would have a son because Abraham is 75 years old when he moves. And then uh, when he's 100 years old, he has this son. And then sometime later, you know, Isaac is a teenager at this point. And Moses lays it out right there. God tested Abraham. So why? I think what we see here is we see this, the promise. Isaac was the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham. Isaac was Abraham's most precious possession. The fulfillment of what God had told him was going to happen. And now God presents him with this test. Where is Abraham's love? Is it 100% to God or is it to this precious gift that God had now given him? And I think that's often something we, we have to weigh in our lives too. Where is our first love? Is it God or is it all these other things that we so often put before God? Yeah, and he, God is testing Abraham knowing that Abraham is going to pass the test. So this isn't for God's benefit. This is for Abraham's benefit. Because he gives us a clue when he says, go and take your son, your only son, even though he, Abraham has another son, an older son, Ishmael, but that son has been sent away. And that when God calls, Abra- calls Isaac uh, Abraham's only son, and he does it again later on, uh, that's the son of the promise. And so that's the, the one that he really loves. And it's so that, as Nathan said, that Abraham does not put that love for his son above his love for his heavenly father. I think it's interesting, too. I was just reading last night uh, an account earlier in Abraham's life when he needs to go to Egypt because of a famine, and there he's worried that Pharaoh is going to kill him on account of the beauty of his wife, Sarah. And it seems like in that instance, even though God had promised Abraham that he was going to be a great nation, Abraham seems to doubt God's promise. We see that also, too, with Ishmael and Hagar, that Abraham seems to doubt that God is going to be faithful to that promise. And now here in this test, we see Abraham's faith that God will fulfill the promise. So again, that test for Abraham's benefit for some other times in his life when he had failed those tests of faith. And it's important to understand that you and I, because we know this story, we know this is a test, uh, that Abraham doesn't have to go through with it. Abraham does not realize this. He realizes it's a test, but he thinks he's going to have to go all the way through. And then God says to go to the land of Moriah. That's a 50-mile journey, three-day journey away. So there's lots of time to think, lots of time to pray and meditate, but also a lot of time for the devil to get in there and try and wedge distrust and uh, a lack of faith between God and Abraham. And I think it's interesting, too, as you read the details, you see how Abraham deliberately went through with all the preparations, splitting the wood, gathering the wood, going on the journey, building the altar, laying out the wood, and then tying up his own son for the sacrifice that he very methodically went through and did exactly as he was supposed to. And he's supposed to make Isaac as a burnt offering. That's a complete offering. Uh, 
It's dedicating himself totally to the Lord. And this obviously did not make any sense to Abraham. You know, God had promised a Savior through Isaac, uh, and so it must have seemed that God's command would destroy God's promise. But that wasn't up to Abraham to try and figure out how to resolve that. He just trusted God's promise and God's command, and if he didn't understand how it would work out, that's on God. And uh, like Nathan mentioned uh, there are two other times that Abraham, well, two other times in Egypt, and then plus the time with Hagar and Ishmael that he doesn't uh, follow through. This time he does, and so he gets up early the next morning. And I think maybe gets up early, maybe before Sarah's up, doesn't talk to her about what's going on, just packs everything up, the boys, uh, meaning the servants, and then his boy, Isaac, and then they go, it was 50 miles. Uh, to the place that God had told him. And I think we see, too, um, some have read this account and see maybe Abraham lying both to the servants and to Isaac when he says that God will provide. But I think that's not Abraham lying or trying to gloss over the truth. I think that's Abraham expressing his faith, his trust that God will provide, either provide an alternative to the sacrifice, which is what we know happens, or that God would provide, that God is the God of both the living and the dead, that God could restore Isaac to him, just as Isaac was a miraculous birth to begin with, that God could use his power and bring Isaac back from the dead. Yeah, and I always like to point that out too, when Abraham says to the servants, you know, you stay here with a donkey, the boy and I will go over there we will worship and then we will come back to you. And I don't think that's like in a pet cemetery type way. Uh, if you are, that's the old Stephen King book and movie where you put your dead animal into the pet cemetery. Later on, it's a person and then they come back and they're changed. They're not the way they were originally when they were alive. That's not this. This is Abraham, I believe, like you said, he's not lying. He has faith because. In his mind, that's the only way this happens. He kills his son because God told him to kill the son. But all the promises are through that son. So the only way it makes sense to him is he'll kill the son and then God will raise the son back from the dead and then they will come back down the mountain and see the servants. Three days later, they will go and see mom. And like you said, uh, that there is that promise of the resurrection here. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered Isaac. This man who received the promises was ready to offer his only son, about whom it was said, through Isaac your offspring will be traced. He reasoned that God also had the ability to raise him from the dead. And in a figurative sense, Abraham did receive him back from the dead. Uh, and then they go up the mountain. And here, when I teach this in eighth grade catechism class, I like to point out the type of Christ that's here. That, first of all, they're on Mount Moriah. So Mount Moriah is where Abraham and Isaac are going up. But later on, that's the mountain where Solomon is going to build the temple. So then when you see Jesus, he is teaching 
on the temple mound in the temple courtyards uh, during Holy Week, and then he is taken and crucified just outside of where the temple mound is, uh, outside the city gates of Jerusalem. So this story has been one that has sparked debate in Lutheran circles for a while, specifically when we're talking about types of Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, because the traditional definition of a type is that we, we don't call something a type unless it's specifically identified as such in the New Testament. Um, we've kind of broadened that out a little bit now, especially like this story. You, you can't help but see the parallels between the sacrifice, the test of Isaac and the testing of Abraham, and the story of Jesus' death and crucifixion of how God the Father sacrificed his own son as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Yeah. And so then you see Isaac as a type of Christ. He is carrying the wood of the sacrifice up the mountain. And what does Jesus do? He carries the wood of the altar uh, up the mountain, up Mount Calvary, for his sacrifice. And then Abraham... The father is sacrificing his son. Jesus is sacrificed by his father. And then the type changes, and then the, the, lamb, the lamb replaces uh, the son on the altar. Uh, when I show this, these stories to my eighth graders, I always like to show some, some artwork because I used to write for Bread for Beggars, and I used to write... Uh, devotions and, and sermons based on oh, on scripture and then bringing in art and we would show it up on the sanctuary screen and so my members said it's like we're going to the Chicago Art Museum and so forth listening to the sermons and looking at the artwork at the same time and one of the pieces that I show for this is the angel of the Lord who has Abraham by the wrist just stopping him and the artist has the Abraham's wrist, you can just kind of see that there is motion coming down. He is ready to slit his son's throat, and then the angel is there holding that wrist back. Uh, and then I, I find it interesting, too, is the angel of the Lord, that is the Son of God. So here you have the Son of God on this mountain as an angel, uh, several centuries before he is on that mountain as son of God and son of man in the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah, it is interesting. Usually whenever we see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, we immediately think of the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, not 100% of the time, but most of the time that is that does seem to be the Savior speaking there. So yeah, it is, it is interesting to see something where there's such a strong picture of, of, the, of God's plan of salvation demonstrated for us in the Old Testament. And then that ram is sacrificed. He becomes the burnt offering. That is a direct parallel to Jesus Christ as a lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He becomes the burnt offering for the sin of everyone. As our substitute, you know, because we are the ones that should be put to death for our sins, but then it's Christ, that ram that is then killed for us as our substitute. And uh, it is a very fitting name for that mountain then. On this mountain, the Lord will provide. And we could say that for Good Friday too. On this mountain of Golgotha, Mount Calvary, the Lord did provide. 
And then the text goes on as uh, the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham now a second time and uh, repeats that promise that now the Savior is going, the Savior, the angel of the Lord, is going to be coming through the son who was just rescued, Isaac. It is interesting. I've been reading through Dennis Prager's commentary on on Genesis um, and was getting to some of the promises made to Abraham and Dennis Prager is a is a Jewish um, commentator on Scripture, and so it's interesting how he explains the promise of that all nations will be blessed because of Abraham. How you have to twist those words if it's not about the Savior, because most Jews don't recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah, and so they have to change that meaning to talk about how the Torah, how God's moral law is the blessing that is being talked about, how living a moral life is the blessing that God gives through Abraham. And then if we would apply this, just as Abraham was tested, we are tested as Christians. And we may complain, we might whine, we might wonder why we're being tested. We might even think, well, God doesn't love me. Look at all the testing he's putting us through. And yet, when you see in Scripture, it's those that he loves the most are the ones that are often going through the most difficult testing, because it's through times of testing that we become stronger in our faith. And that's something often for us, we really struggle with it, because, you know, going through those times of hardship, those times of testing aren't, aren't pleasant, and we can wonder why is God allowing these things to happen to us. But it's it's for our own good. It's the same way that we we discipline a small child to keep them from hurting themselves. They don't necessarily understand that in that moment. They might wonder why mom and dad are being so mean. But we who have the bigger picture know that it is for their good. It's helping them. It's letting them grow and keeping them safe. And for any of us who exercise at all, if we're going to do any kind of long distance running, you need to run ahead of, you know, you got to do some, some running ahead of time. If you're going to do hiking, we got to do some walking. If you're going to do any kind of biking or weightlifting and so forth, in order to be able to lift a lot, run a lot, bike a lot, you need to be building up uh, some resistance. And that resistance is hard. That's testing. And the devil is going to be coming at us very hard. And so to help us to be prepared to go up against the devil, we need to have little tests along the way so that when we have that big test, when the devil comes at us as the God of this age, now we're ready, uh, we're ready to, to go. We're ready to defeat Satan's temptations because the Holy Spirit has given us the strength we need through word and sacraments through times of testing and trouble. One of my coaches in high school referred to it as the pain of discipline versus the pain of regret. That if you submit yourself to that pain of discipline of training, you can succeed. But if you decide, I don't want to do that, you're not going to succeed. And then you live with that pain of regret, knowing I could have endured that lesser pain in the long run, which would have been good for me. And now I have this pain of, of failure because I didn't put the preparation and I didn't do the training. Anything else on the first lesson? No. Then we'll get into the short gospel lesson for this Sunday. Mark chapter 1, 
The Spirit immediately sent Jesus out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels were serving him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The time is fulfilled, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what are you going to be preaching on this Sunday? I am preaching on Jesus' temptation. Uh, and what that meant for us, specifically his obedience to the will of the Father and how the ordeal in the desert at the beginning of his ministry really was kind of preparation for the far greater ordeal at the end of his ministry, Um, and specifically how Satan was trying to get him to doubt his purpose um, and lose his way. So here you have Mark writing by inspiration of the Spirit about the Spirit. So I like to say with this text, while uh, Jesus is still dripping wet from the waters of the Jordan River, the Spirit immediately, because there's a lot of immediately's that Mark uses in his gospel, he immediately sent Jesus out into the wilderness. And the force of that Greek word sent I mean, he drove him out. Yeah, it's actually, it's the Greek word ekbalo, which is the same word that is usually used uh, when talking about Jesus casting out demons, throwing out. And here we shouldn't think that the Holy Spirit forced Jesus to go out into the desert, but it, w- it, was, it was a compulsion. It was something that was necessary, but it was something that Jesus also understood was necessary, and so he willingly went. And so here you have the second Adam, Jesus Christ, going out into the wilderness to undo what the first Adam had done in paradise. So in paradise, Adam and Eve had everything. When Satan tempted them uh, to eat fruit, they didn't need that fruit. And then later on, the second Adam is in the wilderness and the devil tempts Jesus with food. He He needs food. And yet Jesus, the second Adam, does not give in. What's interesting, too, is both Matthew and Luke also record the temptation of Jesus. They focus on kind of the three temptations, which we'll talk about a little bit. But Mark kind of also adds a thing. I think sometimes we get the impression that Jesus was out in the wilderness fasting for 40 days, and then at the end the devil came with those three temptations. But Mark says, no, Uh, He was in the wilderness being tempted. Satan was attacking him during that entire 40-day time period. We only have the three specific attacks recorded for us in Scripture. Yeah, if you want to talk about those three specific attacks, uh, I wanted to focus on how Matthew and Luke, they call the enemy the devil. So he is the adversary, the slanderer, uh, he's no friend. And yet Mark calls him Satan. He is the tempter. He is the smooth talker. He is the one who appears as an angel of light. And with these temptations, I I had this thought that when you and I go through temptations, eventually there's a release. And there's a release because we give in. Okay, But Jesus never once gave in to temptation. He never had a release. So although that these are temptations that are going on for 40 days, the entire lifetime of Jesus is a time of tempting because he never once gave in to those temptations. That, that struck me a while ago when that thought came to me. Uh, and I want it 
to hopefully strike you too. Again, that idea that we have release from temptation because we give in. Jesus never once gave in, and it's always, it had always been there for his 33 years. I kind of played with the other side of that idea that so often when we do give in to sin, we, we get, I'm not going to say this in my sermon, but we get that high because we give in to the sin, and a lot of times the sin, it feels really good, but for a really short period of time, and then afterwards, it's terrible for us. And that's, that's Satan's main main lie. I mean, going back to the garden, I mean, that's what he told Adam and Eve. He wants us to get us to believe that God's keeping something back, that God's our enemy, that God's got this really great stuff, and he's not going to give it to us. But Satan, Satan's willing to be our friend. He's willing to give us, and when we give into that temptation, like Adam and Eve, we realize the fruit's poisoned. It's not good for us. It's terrible for us. And not only does it not bring us happiness, it only brings us death. And the devil is a one-trick pony. He's a smart pony. He's got a good trick because it works. It worked in Ad- with Adam and Eve, and he thought it would work on the second Adam, and, and it didn't. You know, that, uh, like you said, of separating God from people. It worked once. It worked countless times through the history of humanity, but it didn't work this time. When you think, too, like the other thing Satan is super smart about is knowing exactly where we he knows where the chinks in our armor are he knows where to attack us and that's where he goes at us he knows where we're weak and that's where he attacks us to lead us astray we see that with the temptation of jesus fasting in the wilderness for 40 days now i've gone i had a medical issue a couple of years ago and i went four days without eating anything and really not having anything to drink either because I was just on IVs because I couldn't take anything orally. Um, but you get to a point where that's all you're thinking about is food and water. You, you can't focus on anything else. And what's the first thing that Satan attacks Jesus with? Well, just turn these stones into bread. Talking about fasting, there's been in the news about some of these college students that are going on hunger strikes for Palestine. And... They're, they're lasting 12 hours. <laughs> yeah. They, I, I, I routinely go 12 hours without eating. Yeah. And that's the thing. We, a lot of us do. Uh, and especially we, we go at least eight hours at night. That's why you, you break the fast. Uh, we have breakfast. Uh, 12 hours. And, and, and I just thought it was very humorous, the timing of this, because Jesus goes uh, 12 hours multiply that times 80 for, you know, uh, the 40 days, you know, 12 hours each, uh, twice each day. And they, they can't even make it 12 hours. And uh, so that was just kind of, kind of humorous that way. And, but he is out there being tempted. And again, Mark is the only one that emphasizes this, that he was with the wild animals you know, wild animals in the desert, they're not friendly, cute, cuddly little creatures. In here, I was thinking of uh, just recently while I was biking in the morning, uh, seeing a coyote. That was kind of freaky at 6.15 in the morning, knowing that you know I'm by myself on a bike and the coyote was walking away from me. I yelled at it and it just looked at me. But if it would have been other coyotes, it's pretty dangerous. And then the other day we saw a huge fox. That was the biggest fox I've ever seen that was just uh, walking around in our backyard 
He knows where the chickens are and so forth, even though they're in their, their coop. And then there's other wild animals out there that were dangerous to a man. And uh, Mark just says, yeah, he's there with the wild animals. So I'm sure you've done this as well, Michael, when you're doing your, your text studies and every once in a while you come across something in the commentaries and you're like, wait, what? I came across some really bizarre stuff no. with this. Um, apparently, in some more some older commentaries, they took this as, well, it was fine because Jesus says the second Adam had like a bubble of perfection around him. So it was basically he recreated the Garden of Eden so the animals were all out there as his friends. And again, you read that, you're like, I, I don't think that's the plain... Those weren't Lutheran, were they? I don't think so. Okay. I'm like, that's not the plain, the plain meaning of the text here. I think it's that idea of danger and that... Christ is completely alone. I think that's the other emphasis. It's that it's it's him one on one fighting with or battling with Satan. He doesn't have a support group there with him. It's just him alone in the wilderness. And as we're talking about the difference between Lutheran preaching and everybody else, everybody else may use a text like this of Jesus being tempted, and then you'll hear in their sermons, and this Jesus now gives you the example of how you can defeat the devil's temptations. And that's not the way you would hear it from a Lutheran preacher. But there I wanted to talk about the Super Bowl ad. Uh, He gets us. If you've seen it, there's been a big firestorm among the Christian community on the— Kerfluffle? Yes, a kerfluffle. Uh, But he gets us. And the idea there, if you've seen it, they're AI-generated images of different people washing other people's feet, like a woman washing a, the feet of a young lady who is having an abortion, going to have an abortion, uh, a white woman who is washing the feet of uh, an, an illegal immigrant, a white Catholic priest who is washing the feet of a black gay man, and so forth. And basically what other Christians are saying is that that whole he gets us. We understand the idea of Jesus humbled himself, but it's not necessarily teaching us to humble ourselves. And the idea of he gets us is there is no point of putting out those lifestyles were sinners and that Jesus came to save us from those sins. And uh, Jesus is more than just an example to us. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, one, I had trouble with that commercial because it was all AI, and we had talked about this. A little, it's that uncanny valley thing where it was just the people just didn't look look right. But then, two, it seems again to kind of be projecting this message of, well, God accepts us as we we are. That it doesn't it doesn't matter how we live our lives, God loves us. And in one sense, we would say, yes, that God did love all of us and sent his son to suffer and die for us. But scripture is clear. Those who do not believe in Jesus Christ stand condemned because they have rejected the message of the Savior. Um, And even we would say those who profess faith in Christ but continue to blatantly live in sin, rejecting the truth, we would say, well, they may have faith, but they're destroying that faith by continuing in their sins, that God doesn't simply ignore sin. He punished sin in Christ, but the benefits of that only come to us through faith. Yeah, and 
if you watch the Babylon Bee, they've got their articles, they have videos. They created a video of he gets us, but it's from Satan's point of view, meaning, hey, just I get you, just stay in your sin. So that was a pretty powerful, very short video too. But a much better video than the He Gets Us, and I shared this on my Facebook page. You can find it on YouTube. It's, uh, they show uh, images of real people, and then it says, former witch, former jihadist, former KKK member, former gang leader, former drag queen and prostitute, former abortionist, and that abortionist is holding a baby in the second picture, former transgender, former porn star, and she's with her husband and child, former lesbian activist. And then it says, Jesus doesn't get us. He saves us. He transforms us. And then there's other verbs like that. And at the end, it says, such were some of you. Uh, They're quoting, I think, Ephesians. This is what some of you were. Uh, And that's the idea. Jesus doesn't just get us so that we can stay in our sin. He saves us from our sin and then transforms us. That's the point that I wanted to talk about with this with this text. And that's the message that you would hear from a Lutheran viewpoint that you're not going to hear from non-Lutheran pa- pastors and pulpits. I think you also twist it too in this too and talk about how, how Jesus does get us in the sense that only in the religion of Christianity do we have God lowering himself to become man, to take on human flesh. And as Hebrew tells us, Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, and yet he was without sin. I think that's sometimes where people struggle with the temptation in desert. They either fall into two kind of ditches on either side of this, where they either think that there was a very real chance that Jesus was going to fall into sin here and God's entire plan of salvation would be destroyed, or they say, well, Jesus was true God. There was really no chance of him sinning. And so this really isn't a real temptation. It's not really, he never, it wasn't real. Well, no, Scripture says this was a real time of trial and temptation. Now, it is true, Jesus is perfect and could not sin, but he still went and underwent, or he still underwent a trial. And I found a really good analogy, which I'm just going to steal flat out and use in my sermon um, from Professor Deutschlander, in his commentary on Mark, uh, who writes, Though because of the union of his divine and his human natures, there is no possibility of sin, nevertheless the battle is real, the struggle intense. We might think for the example of a runner in a race. He may have no doubt that he will finish the race. Nevertheless, at his conclusion, he will be exhausted and gasping for breath. And then as we're talking about this, uh, the difference between other preachers and Lutheran preachers is not just he gets us, he calls us to repent. And that's the end of the gospel lesson. The time is fulfilled, Jesus preached. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, that's often what we say uh, when we're putting the ashes uh, for our Ash Wednesday banner. So in our in our church, we've been practiced at Epiphany and now Water of Life, that we have a member make a sackcloth banner, and then it's up in front of church, and then in the beginning of the Ash Wednesday service, because I always thought it was weird to have an ashless Ash Wednesday, so we we made ashes, well, we, didn't, we bought the ashes, 
and then mix them with oil and people come forward and dip their finger into the, the bowl of oil and ashes and then make a sign of the cross. And oftentimes then we would say, repent and believe the gospel because that's, that's the good news of law and gospel. Repentance, uh, telling God that you are sorry from your sin and that you want to turn away from it, that's repent, and then believe the good news. And it was pretty cool is we have the banner. I didn't count, but I'm going to guess there's probably 140 or 150 little crosses on that banner. And then the idea is for our worshipers to see that and remem- remember it throughout the season of Lent. Of uh, The whole point of putting our ash crosses on the banner is that Jesus comes with his suffering and death and resurrection and then replaces that ash cross with a crown of glory. He takes our repentance and mourning over sin and replaces it with the oil of gladness. And I think that's one of the, one of the key things we see here is that idea of repentance. I think that people, I think you can correctly talk about this being an example for us in that Jesus shows us we use God's word to refute the attacks of the devil. But we can't resist Satan like Christ did. Christ did it perfectly. Christ was perfectly obedient and did not sin. We can resist Satan for a time. We can remember our baptism. We can strive each day to drown our sinful nature, but it always comes back. Unlike Christ, we do fall into temptation, and that's where we turn and repent and cling to the promise that Christ was obedient, that Christ died, that Christ saved us. All right, anything else you want to talk about with the gospel lesson, the epistle lesson, the Old Testament lesson, the first Sunday in Lent? Yeah, I don't think so. (laughs) All right. Uh, This is a shorter episode. It was a short gospel lesson. So this is Pastor Michael Zarling with Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. You are thirsty, my friends, so drink deeply from the water of life.